Hello again, I'm Miriam Felton. Welcome to Yarn Stories Podcast. Welcome to episode 15 of the first season of Yarn Stories. This is the second to last episode of this season, and while I've got your attention, I want to tell you about the Patreon that I just launched. This podcast costs about $50 every month to run, aside from all the time and research that I put into it. That's $50 of just straight cost. The web hosting for this site, the audio hosting for the actual podcast, and a couple of subscriptions that make it possible for me to talk to you via social media and also to run contests. And you know in the past that I've mentioned that I would really love to pay the experts who give us their time. So if you feel like this podcast has given you something, whether it's enjoyment, me time, or even just some tidbit of knowledge or a point of view you've never experienced, I would really love it if you would join the Patreon. Donations start at as little as $3 a month, and for all levels of support, there is a patron-only RSS feed. So if you'll be sad about going a few months without this podcast, then $3 a month will get you all the really fantastic bonus content I have accumulating. I'll be releasing episodes on sheep shearing with Deb Robson and more in-depth talk with Ben from Mountain Meadow Wool, plus some other bits that I've excerpted from interviews throughout the season about creative play and some other topics. I've got a bunch planned for the patron-only feed, and there are even more rewards available with different levels like a monthly postcard, free pattern codes, and even to have me knit for you every year. You can visit patreon.com slash Miriam Felton to find out more, and I'd really love it if you check that out. Today I'll be chatting with Jean DeCoster of Elemental Effects Shetland. Jean's company is doing some really amazing stuff with U.S. sourcing, and Jean has spent her career in this industry doing things that seem impossible. So I hope that you'll enjoy it. I'm here with Jean DeCoster, owner and insanity engineer of Elemental Effects. Hey, Jean. Hi, I like my ti- I like my new title. <laughs> well, you're you're we'll we'll get to that. There's a question later that we're going to cover a little bit of your insanity. So, okay. <laughs> um, your love affair with Shetland sheep started when you bought a Shetland fleece at the county fair to spin. So, what drew you to that fleece in the first place? Uh, you mean besides insanity? Oh. Well, yes, yeah, you know that's a given. I had just learned to hand spin. Mm-hmm. And just following my normal procedure, I started with a very long Surrey alpaca, mm-hmm. and then I did some mulberry silk. And so <laughs> I was sort of already preset to this long, soft thing. And yeah. I'll tell you, a Shetland fleece on the hoof is just absolutely one of the most amazingly soft, beautiful things. And it was the first exposure I had to what some people call a double-coated fleece. Yeah. So there was all this really soft undercoat Mm -hmm. and this little curly tips on the end. And I had no idea what it was. And my spinning (laughs) teacher had no idea what it was. Oh, wow. And I just... I had to have it because, hey, it looked impossible. So why not? (laughs) Yeah. So for anybody listening that doesn't understand what a dual-coated fleece is, there's a fine downy underhair that, you know, keeps the sheep warm and has lots of lanolin in it and all that. But 
Um, there's also a longer guard hair that that protects the fleece underneath and makes the animal more weatherproof. And just to be even more nerdy, um, <laughs> in the case of Shetland fleece, they don't actually have, they're considered a low grease fleece. Yeah. So they have not that much more grease in the undercoat. Yeah. But depending on the breeding and the feed and stuff, it can be as soft as um, my micron count cashmere. Wow. And in this case, the second coat was fine enough. A lot of people consider guard hair being when it hits a certain micron count. Yeah. But a second coat can be as fine as you know, not as the undercoat, but... Um, but it's as fine as, like, some other kind of fleece. Yes, yes. So it serves the purpose that you're talking about. Yes, but it's, but it's not quite as hairy as something like an Icelandic sheep that has a dual coat and those guard hairs are, like, gnarly. The second coat tends to be a much heavier micron count or, yeah. a, or a churro, which is another yes. multi-coated fleece. Yeah. Yep. Cool. So um, it was just pretty and luscious. Oh, and the color, the color was amazing. It was a natural, you know, because the Shetland come in natural colors. Yeah. What color was it? It was a really bluish gray. Oh, just love that with, one. With the sort of dark reddish tips. Yeah. And oh, <laughs> that's pretty. No wonder you fell and in I, love with it. Well, and I took it to my spinning teacher and I said, what the heck do I do with these tips? And she said, cut them off. No. <laughs> and I said, I don't think so. <laughs> so I just carded it all together and spun it. And yeah. uh, it, it made a really beautiful yarn. That's awesome. So all of the Shetland fleeces for your yarn come from your friend Kathy's farm in Helena, Montana. Yes. Kathy's farm is out. Uh, ranch, I guess, is a better term. Ranch. Yeah. is outside of Helena. Okay. And actually, she's just recently semi-retired. Yeah. And the flock is now on the move. She's kept some of them. And a young man in, well, young to me, uh, <laughs> and, and his wife in Colorado are trying to make it as full-time breeders. Oh, that's cool. He's, he's had most of them for the last couple of years. And we've recently moved some of them to Kentucky. It's the same flock, but it's spreading out a little bit more. Yes. When I started the yarn with Kathy, it kind of came out of a, don't tell me I can't do this kind of thing because yeah. it is technically impossible to make a viable Shetland yarn in the United States. And when I say viable, that it can be priced at a competitive retail price to play well with the others in the group. Yeah. And that has to do with how small the sheep are, how small yeah. the fleeces are, how long the staple length is. That was a technical difficulty yeah. more than a logistical. I mean, Got I you know what I mean? Well, yeah, like finding a mill that's gonna that's going to spin yarn for you that's you know that has such a longer staple length than the standard of what they do, I'm sure was difficult. It was difficult. The the first thing though is most of the Shetland in the United States are held in small hobby flocks yeah. for hand spinners. Yep. And you can't start something like this by paying hand spinning prices for no. for fleece to, yeah, to you get need it to buy them to, in bulk. Yeah. And at a at a discounted price from you know yeah. the quantity that a that a, a hobby. Just say at a 
wholesale yeah. price. Not wholesale a price. price. <laughs> Truth. Yeah. Yep. So did you know Kathy before you bought that first lease? Like, how did you get to know Kathy? I actually took a lot of spinning classes from um, Judith McKenzie. Mm-hmm. And Judith lived in Montana at the time. Yeah. And when I expressed an interest in this, she called me out of the blue one day. She had been working with Kathy because Kathy's original flock came from a friend of Judith's. Okay. And so Judith was training and working with Kathy to be able to handle the fleece well. Mm -hmm. And they tried doing the whole hand spinning route for a while. And Kathy was more of a rancher than a a small business person. Yeah. And and the sheep were really on her ranch to do a job. Yeah. They're they're good range sheep. Yeah. They keep overgrowth of like weeds and stuff down and they fertilize the field. So you can, you can graze sheep on a field that you're like leaving fallow because it needs a rest. Like there's a bunch of different reasons to have sheep beyond just yes. wool. Yes. And and she uh, is required by law to do a certain kind of maintenance of mm-hmm. the undergrowth on yeah. her ranch, which is rather um, sprawling in the middle of Montana's vastness sort of thing. Yeah. So she actually had some shepherds and they, um, instead of, hiring people to come in with chainsaws and rototillers and things like that. She ran the sheep That's, yeah. through these areas that she needed to have control. That's great. So Judith called me and said, hmm, Kathy would rather sell the clip all at once. Yeah. Instead of hand spinning. And that's how I met Kathy as I trotted. I was working in New York at the time and I trotted my butt out to Montana in the middle of, um, the winter yeah, (laughs) (laughs) because they seem to constantly shear in March. Yeah. Montana in March is still pretty formidable. (laughs) Oh man. We went from (laughs) minus 12 to 70 degrees at different shearing years. And it was the first year was just absolutely beautiful. And I remember as a native third generation Los Angelino, Southern Californian. <laughs> Judith yep. is driving me to the airport, and all I could keep saying was, please remind me how cold it gets here because I was ready to move instantly. <laughs> but the next year it yeah. was eight degrees. And So you started with the Shetland, but you've expanded your lines into other breeds. You make a Romney yarn for fancy tiger crafts called Heirloom that I had the great pleasure to design the metamorism pullover with. Your Romney source sort of fell into your lap, right? The like the farm or the ranch in Oregon that they came from was mulching their fleeces, right? Well, it actually is a little bit longer story than that. This was early on and Jude I was with Judith McKenzie and we had done shearing in Montana and and I can't remember why, but I was going with her up into Canada to old college for, I think she was teaching or something like that. And on the drive back, keep in mind, Judith is from Canada and she's also from yeah. a more rural background. I saw a sign for a wool pool. Yeah. I said, what the hell is that? And why don't we have them? <laughs> and so, We do, well, but... Yeah, but not... So I was ignorant. This was, what, 15 years ago. And so we stopped on this sightseeing trip. And in the back of the wool pool, they had these two long burlap sacks of really beautiful, soft, super long 
Romney, please. Yeah. Like how long are we talking staple length? Uh, seven to nine inches. It was like yeah. overgrown. Yep. It was Long. just beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe it was six or seven. But in my head, yeah. it was super, super long because it's much longer than I would normally see. Yes, that's fair. And Judith kind of looked at me. She knew what stage I was in in this whole process. And she said, yeah, you should do it. So I bought five, six hundred pounds of fleece, had it shipped mm-hmm. to me in, in the U.S., and I yeah. started by turning it into hand spinning fiber. Yeah. And I did that for a little while and it got too hard to get it out of Canada. And I started asking around because mm. I was still doing um, retail yarn shows. And somebody referred me to these two ladies in um, Northern California at Tawanda Farms. And mm. they were raising grass fed lamb and beef. And they had been shearing and selling it to the local wool pool because it's not a commercial fleece. The price kept going down and down like it was 25 cents a pound. And I can't remember whether the wool pool closed or they just said, screw it. And they started mulching the fleece. Yeah, because it might not be worth it if you can't get a good price for it. Right. And so I got connected to them about that time. And I did spinning fleece with their fleece for about four or five years mm-hmm. and it just before you turned it into a yarn it wasn't economically viable to keep making the spinning fleece mm-hmm. um it took like 80 percent of my time for 20 percent of my income and yeah. people loved it and so i kept trying to figure out how to make a yarn that would appeal to knitters yeah and it's a very rustic wool it's not it's you know it's woolly it's not like super soft like a merino it's not like you know crazy shiny like a blue face lester it's it's like a woolly toothsome wool yes and it's not that different to the greater knitting world than the shetland would be so i thought what the hell i did a sample of it in the same size of the shetland and i looked at it and goes well then why have both of them because the qualities were were too close sort of thing yeah and it didn't have all the colors basic rock uh natural colors so i tried another sample and i hand spun this beautiful irregular super low twist skein that when you touched it it looked pretty on the shelf and it looked when you touched it 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 most knitters would go oh that's interesting they would mm-hmm. if they're super soft people they wouldn't like it yeah but the knitting world had changed yeah. you know probably when they were at the point of mulching their fleeces you know the knitting world was very much looking for merino and merino silk cat like merino cashmere nylon blends you know stuff like that things yes. that were very very soft but we have shifted. We have shifted. And when the mill sent the yarn, I sent the samples to them and they said, yes, we can do this. And when they sent it mm-hmm. back to me, what they sent was a perfectly balanced yarn instead of this irregular yarn that I gave them. Yeah. And I didn't think it would sell to the greater knitting market. So I yeah. offered it to Fancy Tiger because it fit their market. And they said, oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And they were just going to sell it as a house yarn. But it turned out, like you said, the market had changed enough that they thought it would be really great to sell it to the greater wholesale market. Mm -hmm. And it's true that the market's changed enough that it does have a wider market, but it's still most appealing to the wool 
knittery, literary, liter. I can't even come up with the right the word. Literati, the yes, the wool literate people. Yes, yes, wool literate. The people, people who understand like breed specificity, or yes. you know, are searching that kind of thing out. People yes. who are looking particularly to branch out into different breeds. Yes. Yeah. Not so cool. much to the everyday casualness. Yeah, yeah, the hardcore. The, I say capital K knitters. Oh, uh, you know, lowercase K knitters are like, oh, I think I want to make a hat. I'll make this hat. You know, a capital K knitter has you know five of their next projects lined up. Like they have a stash. They know they know what they want to make next. They have a whole list of things they want to make. They're informed. You know, capital K knitters versus lowercase K knitters. Well, and then you might want to add a letter because there's the soft knitters and then the regular That's knitters. That's true. So, yeah. so I decided if I wanted this business to grow to something that would actually support me, I needed to add some what I call my white soft yarns. Yeah, and, so you you make the Cormo yarn, yeah. which is a white soft yarn that you know you can over dye in all the colors, and Civility, which is a merino silk blend. Yes, uh, but yeah, so tell me about those a little. And are all of your yarns grown and spun in the U.S.? All of the wool is grown in the U.S. Yeah, well, the Shetland and the Romney I source directly from buyer uh, from the, mm-hmm. the from the, the ranchers. Yeah, yeah. The Cormo, I actually work with a wool broker mm-hmm. who finds it for me every year. Okay. So you're getting the Cormo in bundles from the wool broker, so they might be coming from multiple farms. They do, although... Or ranches. He's found that it always comes from a single ranch. Okay. But because this is actually fleece is something, commercial fleece is something that is highly affected by strangely enough in my head is not the breeder global conditions local conditions feed you know all that kind of thing that since i'm very particular about the micron count and the breed characteristics and all that kind of stuff he's Mm -hmm. responsible because he visits hundreds of ranchers every season he's always finding the one that Will he's finding you the best Cormo every year, no, that, no matter which ranch it's coming from. Yes, and luckily the last That's great. few years it's been coming from the, from the same one in North Dakota or something. Good, so they've had some consistency there. That's it's great. one of the difficulties in creating a a consistent small batch yarn that yeah. still has characteristics yeah. that will appeal to people who need a little bit more consistency. And then mm-hmm. the civility, the wool silk yarn, it's U.S. Merino, but I get that directly from a place called Chargers, which oh, is yeah. the commercial yeah. top making company in the U.S. And they do okay, cool. specific, uh, they let me specify that it's U.S., must be U.S. and a certain micron count. And um, I do have to bring the silk in. Okay. So the silk seems to be the only thing that's not grown yeah, in the U.S. Yeah, and that's only because okay. I couldn't. And that yarn actually started because a friend of mine asked me to help her replace something that she'd been importing. You do love a challenge. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Somebody says, hey, why don't you figure out this? And you're like, yes, or I bet you can't figure this out. And you're like, yeah. suck it, I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was it. The bigger hurdle on that yarn was... For me to decide to carry it myself in addition yeah. to her. 
yeah. because it wasn't fitting my original model of grade specific. Yeah. But it does fit my larger model of U.S. grown and quality yarn designed from the ground up. Yeah. As opposed to just accepting what males are dishing out. Yeah. That's great. And part of that exciting thing is, is it has always bugged me that I've had to bring the silk in from China. Yeah. And a while ago, one of my sales reps said that they heard that Mexico had silk. Oh, so it could at least be North American. Yes. Like completely North American. And in my backyard. And yeah. And, and so, and on top of that, if it were true, if I could find it, <laughs> it would be something I could work with to help. Uh, these words aren't going to come out right, but it would be coming from a small village in Mexico that would welcome yeah. economic development, if you would. For sure. Absolutely. So it took me three years to track it down, which is a whole nother long story. So you found it. I found it. <laughs> oh, that's exciting. I found it enough to get a kilo sample. And I'm about to, I want to make a yarn that is a warmer weather yarn. So I have sourced some, no, no, this throws me back off track, some Belgian <laughs> linen and some U.S. wool and the Mexican silk. And I keep thinking, wait a second, this is okay because, hey, this is what America is. We are a melting pot, right? No, it's but true. My original plan was to do some U.S. hemp. U.S. hemp would be would be beautiful in a blend like that. At the time I started this research, it just was impossible to find any domestic hemp at the right micron count, you know, for a, yeah. for a good hand knitting yarn. And yeah. just the other day, I got a lead on some. Anyway, so I'm I'm on the hunt to see if I can actually uh, get some of that. Well, that's exciting. That's awesome. So um, let's talk a little bit about your dyeing process. What dyes are you using? And uh, like, where are you dyeing? What's your setup like? I am <laughs> um, dyeing at home. I mm -hmm. was in uh, the garage. And, uh, <laughs> like most people, we, we start yes, in strange places. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I feel a little bit like one of those um, Silicon Valley startups. Yeah, like like you get computers set up in your garage and you've got like big orange <laughs> extension cords. Well, and then about, I guess it's been about seven years now, maybe. That you've been dying in your garage? No, we had a big ass <laughs> fire that burned everything down. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not great. And well, you know, at one point I thought, oh, great, it's all going. I don't have to do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't all go. But enough went that when we rebuilt, I ended up getting a, a studio out of it that's about, oh, nice. you know, the size of a nice size apartment. And I set up a special dyeing shed outside. That's great. Um, I have, I use, because I'm all wool at the moment, wool and silk. I use uh, acid dyes. Yeah. Um, on the Shetland, I primarily use Judith's mother's mother Mackenzie's miracle dye, awesome. which is a uh, seven colors of uh, an acid dye. Cool. And I also use Dharma's acid dyes for the white yarns, which I've been really happy with. Yeah, because they can take you know more more saturated color. So the Shetland is being over dyed over the natural heather of the Shetland, right? I dye over all the natural colors except the black. Yeah. 
And I only dye one color on the white because it's the only way to get true yellow. Oh, okay. Yeah, because the other colors from all the heather of the natural Shetland colors would mess with the yellow and you'd get like muddy colored. Well, actually, if I put straight yellow on the light gray, Mm -hmm. I get a beautiful limish green. Oh, interesting. That's real curious. Huh. If I put it, when I put it on the fawn, it's a sort of lichen color. Yeah, like, yeah. So the fawn is kind of a, like, warm brown. uh, Yeah, medium light brown. you get a lichen color. (laughs) That's so weird. (laughs) Yeah. And if I, and if I dye it on the, on the M skit, which is the medium gray, Mm -hmm. I get what I call forest moss. And the only way for me to get anything resembling yellows is to, I have a series of colors called ochre and bronze and Mm -hmm. old gold and stuff is that I've got to put some orange in it to kill the blue. I mean, it's a whole color theory thing. So, (laughs) so yeah, so I dye over all the natural colors. That's fun. It was a miracle. It was kind of like uh, alchemy. It was a feeling of magic. Yeah. You like you know you you've got a guiding principle you've got like a plan but because it's a handmade product there's always something that you know that surprises you. Oh gosh, yes. I thought I knew how to die before I started. <laughs> when you start by dying straight on the natural colors, yeah. it just throws your higher color theory off, and you go, yeah. ooh. <laughs> <laughs> So speaking of your Shetland, it's comparable in weight to Jameson or Jameson and Smith Shetland. So was this a conscious decision on your yeah. part to, to make them compatible? Well, actually, I started with 12 or 13 colors. No, it wasn't. I mean, yes, it ended up that way. But I originally was doing a weight that was a heavier than sport, lighter than worsted. Some people okay. called it light worsted. Some people called it DK, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And when I did a focus group study with Janine Bayjuice's feral knitter group in Seattle mm-hmm. at the time, they said more colors and it needs to be interchangeable with oh, the other. Okay. Yarn. So you came to that through market research. Through market research and a, and a problem with the original mill. Uh, so, so, so it, it worked out fortuitously because you needed to find a different mill and yeah. Yes. Yes. And I, I was, it was really interesting to try and find a large enough mill that would do this. And I, I found this mill in uh, Massachusetts that's run by five brothers and it's like, they're like the third generation. And I got this, the guy, the brother on the phone who, who does the carding. And I mm-hmm. must have just almost, I just asked him about an hour's worth of questions, which was amazing that he kept me on the, let me stay, keep him on the phone that long. They're so busy. But yeah. at the end of it, I, I, I was so, so happy and so grateful. I proposed to him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and oh, Jean. his wife wouldn't appreciate it, but the, thank you anyway. No, not so much. <laughs> But he appreciates the sentiment. <laughs> well, and they've been doing my Romney and my Shetland. It's a woolen mill for uh, all yeah. this time. In spite of the fact that most of the time, um, their biggest customer, they do baseball guts. Yeah. 
That's fascinating. Yeah. So I heard about this mill that did mostly baseball guts because somebody else is using them too. And I was like, I was like, wait, 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 wait. I have to talk to those people. <laughs> <laughs> like I want to, I want to know about like spinning for baseball guts, like producing wool for baseball guts. It's, they actually, it's the, the fiber is provided to them from the people making the baseball and it's okay. it's a blend of a lot of trash wool if you will yeah and it's not easy to spin and i think it's one <laughs> every time i call them the people that work in the spinning room say please send us more because we like your yarn it holds together <laughs> <laughs> it's very difficult to spin the baseball get yarn yeah so we met at a self-publishing retreat run by Kat Bordy, and you were working on a project that required a lot of photographs of different women of different shapes and sizes. <laughs> and I ended up letting you photograph me in my underwear for the project that weekend that I met you, which I think says a lot about the retreat and the camaraderie that we built. But um, every time I talk, it seems like you're working on something else crazy. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, it sounds like right now you're working on the... Uh, on sourcing that new yarn, or do you have any any other stuff in the works that you're like that you have insanity yes. about? Yes, and it is one of the things. Always. That I, besides reworking my website, I decided for the Cormel yarn, it has such springy characteristics that it's not mm-hmm. always easy to substitute it into other patterns yeah. because the row gauge yeah. will be very off. So I mm-hmm. partner with. The with Brooke at Sincere Sheep, and we decided that yeah. I needed to produce a set of classic patterns and then start doing patterns every year, you know, fireworks or whatever. Yeah. And I, my background is such that writing patterns is not difficult, but I started doing these and I said, I, my head exploded because I have this philosophy <laughs> that if you write a pattern in five sizes, it's going to fit five people. And we have an entire group of knitters who don't knit sweaters because yeah. um, they because don't they want to do the math. Getting fit. Yep. And I think during one of our meetings, I had, I mean, at uh, the self-publishing, I'd been working on a project to, that was very similar to what Amy came out with for um, her custom yeah. fit sweater patterns. Amy Herzog for people listening. Amy Herzog, sorry, uh, which is a really cool system. Yeah, it's awesome. But I decided I still couldn't write fixed patterns anymore. Yeah. So I sat down and created what I'm calling my made-to-measure patterns. And they are an interactive PDF. That's great. Which means that you order the pattern. It has two patterns in it, a pullover and a cardigan. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's delivered like any normal PDF file. And you open yeah. it up in Adobe Reader, and you put your measurements in and your gauge, and you hit calculate. Oh, that's great. And it just fills in the rest of the pattern. It fills in the rest of the pattern. And You're I a think smart it lady. will fit in. That sounds pretty great. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it'll fit in uh, the same niche as Amy's custom fit, but yeah. for a different customer. Yeah, for sure. And uh, it was the kind of thing where. I would want one that I owned and didn't subscribe to. And so 
just a different model. And I've been testing yeah. it a lot and I'm about ready to release it. It's going to um, mostly be available at the beginning just through my Cormo stores. Okay. That sounds yeah. awesome. It's kind of cool. My secret desire is, you know, I'm a, I'm a garment girl. I, I'm not an accessory girl. Yeah. I'd much rather knit a triple XL men's fair isle style sweater than a pair of socks. <laughs> so, so this is my my offering to people to woo them to the dark side of garments instead of accessories. It's <laughs> fair. No, the light side. The light side. Yeah, the light side. We're we're the good. We're the force for good. <laughs> Uh, people who like to make garments. Um, I think that it's a completely different experience for yourself to make a garment that fits you than it is to make an accessory. It's it's an empowerment and it's it's an understanding and acceptance of your body. But like for me, making a garment size to me is couture. Like, you know, it's high fashion. This is like a very custom garment, you know? <laughs> It's like it it just feels magical and mm -hmm. empowering to me. It does. And in this, since I started with very simple classic shapes, or yeah. I'm going that way, and I'm working on the concept that if people understand that a set-in sleeve that is on the right position their shoulders, and if they pick the right yeah. length, that there is, it's going to flatter mm -hmm. just because yeah. it fits you, not because it is yeah. fitted. Yeah, you can absolutely have an oversized sweater. And as long as it fits you through the shoulders, it looks like it's right. Like the proportions are right, no matter how oversized it is. Yeah. 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 We want to start wearing what we knit instead of just knitting it so people can see how cool we are because we can knit cool things. <laughs> Yeah, for me, it's a it's a radical choice of making like making sure that I know where oh, my yeah. clothing comes from. It's the same uh -huh. reason that I sew my clothing. And it's the same thing that this whole podcast is based on about like transparency in the supply chain and understanding yeah. where things yeah. are coming from. It's important to me. <laughs> well, it, it is really important to a, a, a growing number of people. And yeah, I um, so. so I have those those dual tugs in my head that says, Yes, come to the light side, knit your own garment. <laughs> yeah. And then the and and don't you want to know where it came from? <laughs> yeah. And I don't think those are mutually exclusive. I think that they're very compatible. But there is a seeming barrier of people not valuing their work or thinking they're not good enough yeah. or their bodies yeah. that they're not good enough to wear what they knit you know sort of thing so yeah. it's an interesting psychological thing when I when I teach with this sure. to yeah. how much I have to spend time with talking about that you're worth it yeah well and like you can't trust commercial sizes they're arbitrarily oh. like commercial sizes are not the judge of whether or not you're beautiful or whether yes. you're healthy or whether you're acceptable, like whether you're okay. You know, commercial sizes are arbitrarily agreed upon by, you know, a company's executives or whatever sizing department. And they don't actually translate to real people. 
you know, yes. or at least to the majority of real people. Like real people come in all different shapes and sizes. And yes, this shape or size is going to fit somebody somewhere, but it's not going to fit everybody everywhere. Yes. And so making your own or, you know, making something custom is inherently an acceptance of your body because you start with the measurements that you have. Yes. And then accepting that, that commercial stuff is all about averages and it has to be. Yeah. For the same reason it has that to be. somebody writing a, a, a knitting pattern, no matter how yeah. many sizes they write it in, they still yeah, we have, have to, to make some averages. decisions. Yeah. Yep. I've, I've totally been there where you go into a dressing room and you put the jeans on and you think, oh, my ass doesn't fit in these jeans. Yes. Yeah, that's not the way it works. That Those jeans don't fit my yeah. ass. <laughs> The jeans are the thing no, that's wrong, wrong not jeans. my ass. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's something wrong with the jeans, yeah. not something wrong with my ass. Yeah. My ass is fantastic. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, but like I finally made my own pair of jeans Ooh. this last year. And like it's amazing. They're fantastic. And like even though they're still not perfect because, you know, like I made them, they were kind of a basically a wearable muslin and I need to make another pair and make those adjustments that, you know, like because jeans stretch differently once you've worn them. Like, you know, you can do all the all the thinking about it that you want, but until they're actually on your body, you know, it's not going to be perfect because you don't know how they're going to change once they're on your yes. body. Anyway, but so like, you know, I made my own jeans and it was revelatory. I was like... Like, there's no question about whether there's something wrong with my hips or something wrong with my butt or, you know, that my waist is too, like, sway back. There's no worry about that because I start with who I am. Yes, but you've also stumbled on something that is one of the bar other barriers between casual knit for fun knitters and making the leap over to um, knit for the themselves because besides yeah. fit... They need to start accepting ownership of the cloth that they're that yeah. they're making by with their hands. And what made me yeah. think of that was your pants thing. I spent four years with my background is fashion design. I got my degree in fashion design. Mm -hmm. So I, my mother decided she wanted to make the perfect pants pattern. Mm -hmm. So we must have made oh. 15 muslins and samples and stuff and she'd turn around and make them yeah. out of a fabric that had nothing to do with yeah. what we'd sampled in and no understanding and that's, not work. that's to why that didn't work why it suddenly has a whole <laughs> lot more room in it or not enough room and stuff yeah. like that because and every fabric behaves differently when when i'm doing this pattern and i'm saying only approving it for the cormo and the civility it's because yeah. that's what i've tested it in at these gauges yeah. and i'm not allowing it and the pattern to be an open gauge sort of thing because this yeah. is the cloth that i know works yeah and anytime you make a change to that you're taking it into your own hands and making it your own and risking it not coming out exactly the same yeah as you know, as the sample, yes. but like, that's half the fun of knitting <laughs> for some people, for others, they consider it a failure that it yeah, didn't come out the way that they expected. I like to control a lot of things in my life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not, I wouldn't say I am controlling, but you know, there's a lot of things that I'm really passionate about being in charge of. I'm very determined to be in charge of them, but like, 
that's why knitting is magic and a release and, you know, and like fun because yeah. you can't, you know, you can't know exactly how it's going to behave unless until you work it. Yeah. But I, I don't know. It's, it, I've just been learning so much about the different reasons that different people knit. Yeah. That's and true. there is a point for some people, especially like, you hear that we have a lot of high power knit uh, knitters that are lawyers and doctors, mm-hmm. emergency room doctors and stuff, and yeah. they don't want to think. They're in it for the total tactile thing. So yeah. asking them to do a garment that fits them just adds a level of stress that takes away their fun, sort of. That's true. Yeah. You and I are at the point where, hey, that's part of the puzzle. That's part of the challenge. Yeah. That's part of the crazy that says, We hey, like that part. I can do this. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's a good reminder that there's so many different, uh, different yeah. types of knitters. And it's it's been a real constant lesson for me that uh, what I do has to be for a specific types of people and not knitters and not expecting to satisfy every knitter yeah knitter's need sort of thing yeah that makes sense cool so there's a question that i ask everybody at the end of our season one interviews what would be your everyday superpower well (laughs) i'm glad we talked about this a little ahead of time because (laughs) i was struggling with it but we we have sort of followed this theme throughout this interview i if somebody tells me I can't do something, I just, it triggers something in my puzzle brain that says, oh, yeah? <laughs> Watch me. I can figure it out. Watch me. <laughs> you know, sort of thing, which leads to my, all of my levels of insanity because nobody starts this kind of business on a small, commercially unviable sheep. And yeah. I said, Watch me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do it in the U.S. From yeah. In the U.S., you know. So. We're going to add a, an added level of complication. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. And and every time I think I have the puzzle in place, it's a moving puzzle. And I yeah. guess that keeps me at it because it's been, oh, 12 years. Damn. 13, 12. Awesome. Wow. I don't even want to count. <laughs> <laughs> Just when I got it pinned down, it goes, oops. Yeah, a and puzzle. something <laughs> shifts. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking to me, Jean. Well, thank you, Miriam. Jean has given us a very generous kit of full-size skeins to make Midsummer Bouquet, a Shetland hat and mitt set. So be sure to enter the drawing for that on the site at yarnstoriespodcast.com. I actually recorded this interview with Deb before I spoke to Jean about her yarns, so near the end you'll hear Deb referring to the breakup of the biggest Shetland flock a few years ago. This is the same flock that Jean sourced from that now is broken up into different ranches from Montana to Colorado to Kentucky. So let's hear from Deb. Hey Deb. Hi Miriam. Thanks for joining me again. You're welcome. Let's talk today about Shetland. 
one of the most complex breeds on the planet. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Yes. I know that a lot of people, you know, like will focus specifically on raising Shetland sheep because they're so like intricate and there's so many different colors and there's, ugh. Well, they're also different textures. So, yeah, um, the breed is extremely diverse. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is a concept which applies to Shetlands called a landrace breed. What does that mean? It means a breed that is locally adapted to an area Mm -hmm. and yet has a broad gene pool. Okay. So, what you end up with is flocks in which in Shetland Mm -hmm. you can have sheep coming out with varied types of fleeces Mm -hmm. Uh, they all have a common look they have common sturdiness to them yeah uh, common history and yet you have a whole lot of variety in who you see and how their fleeces feel so there's a lot of genetic variation within the breed correct um, it's, okay. yeah, there is. So they're, from what I understand, kind of a small and sturdy sheep. They're a very sturdy sheep and they are quite small. Like um, how, so most, give me a like size comparison. So like, a, you know, a, like a standard, like let's talk about say a Ramboulet. How big uh, are they? Uh, well, they're big. Yeah. Um, you get a lot of fleece from a Rambouillet. You get a lot of fleece from a Rambouillet. You, you don't get as much from a Shetland, although some of them can have quite a bit on them. Basically, we've had a joke around the family. We we, we live in a, a city and can't really have sheep here, but we joke about getting a couple of Shetlands or three or four and calling them Fido and Rover. Because <laughs> they're um, about the size of dogs. Yeah. You know, good Like size a medium-sized dog. Yeah. Size, yeah. But, but yes. Not, not like St. Bernard size, but like not like Jack Russell Terrier size either. Correct. Somewhere in between. Yes, Labrador size, sort of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They are very lively. (laughs) You do not want Shetlands unless you like animals that have intelligence and energy. Okay. So a little more like goats than sheep in that respect. A little bit, yes. Um, mm, You know, goats goats are in their own world, but... Oh, um, yeah. But but yes. Yeah, personality, like, so it would would actually make a little sense to have a Shetland as a pet. Although you don't want one. Oh, okay. They're flock animals. Yes, they're flock animals. Um, They like their own kind or, you know, they'll get along with other creatures too. But yeah, you you want more than one. Okay. And in fact, some spinners have like two weathers, which are castrated males, so that Mm -hmm. they don't have to worry about ramishness. Um, Because rams can be, again, individual personalities. Some of them are really sweet, but some of them... Have added. Yeah, well, it's yeah. anytime you take a gamble with that much testosterone going through an animal, like it's gonna. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they could be really nice, or they could be complete jackasses. Right. In which case, you actually probably don't want to breed from them. Okay. Because, because they'll breed into they'll breed that same kind of. You don't need behavior. it. You don't. Oh, okay. Need it. I mean, you can get the nice ones, so why not? Yeah. Um, truth. So anyway, we're back to land race and the fact that there are a variety of different types of Shetlands, and. In Shetland, you can get those types coming out within the same flock. Okay. You also have people choosing a particular subset of the Shetlands that they prefer mm-hmm. and breeding for consistency in their own flock representing okay. that type. So you've got a wide range of people like kind of, you know, hands-on 
specifically breeding for a particular trait within a flock of, of Shetland sheep and yes. people who also like, you know, are not that fastidious and have a wide variation of fleece in their flock. True. Okay. So, um, so it's just a matter of how fastidious the breeder and the, you know, the shepherd wants to be. I don't think fastidious is the word. Okay. Um, I think it has to do with personal choice. Okay. And preference. Um, you you will have extremely fastidious breeders who have a wide variety of fleeces in their flocks. Okay, because that's what they want. They're that's what they for want. That. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So you'll have some Shetland fleeces that are two and a half to four inches long, okay. uh, very crimpy, quite fine micron counts. Mm-hmm. You will have some that might go up to six or more inches long. Wow. And be a mix of hair and wool. Okay. You will have anything in between. So for people not familiar with, you know, hair versus wool, can you talk a little bit about that? Okay. Hair is longer, stiffer, mm-hmm. uh, sheds water really well. In other words, it's a... It's a it's a good weatherproofing for the animal. Yeah. Um, it is more durable. Within the it doesn't Shetland, have so much crimp. It's a thicker fiber. It is a thicker fiber, and it has a different sort of crimp, yeah. more open crimp. Yeah. Within the Shetlands, the hair is not super, generally super hairy. Okay. So that you can generally uh, Leave it proce- in. process them together. Yep. Yeah. And, Does it grow the, longer than, yes. the, than the wool? Okay. Yes. The hair parts grow longer yes. than the wool. Okay. Yes. Um, there may be some camp in some fleeces, which is a shorter fiber, but it's not terribly common in Shetlands. Okay. So uh, can you breed Shetlands specifically for their different colors? Yes. And the colors actually uh, need some attention in terms of being endangered. Okay. There's been an effort to eradicate scrapie, which is a genetically, sheep are genetically vulnerable to scrapie. And there's been a a worldwide move to eliminate that genetic susceptibility. And in the Shetlands, one of the things that's happened is they have lost some of the colors in that process. Oh, because the coloring is is being, yeah, is linked to the genetic susceptibility. Yeah. And we don't completely understand that at all. Um, which which color is it? A particular color, or is it um, just coloring in general? Um, we don't know exactly, but okay. Um, but but in in breeding to reduce susceptibility to scrapie, they've they've lost some color. We're losing some colors. Um, okay. And again, we're we're at the edge of my research here, where yeah. I need to go deeper. But I know that um, when they breed for scrapie resistance, um, the moret, which is the brown solid brown, yeah. and the white are in the clear. Okay. But, but the other patterns may be vulnerable. Yeah, so uh, Shetland sheep can also be spotted, right? Oh, like yeah. With, like, mix, like not all one color of wool, you know, throughout the sheep. They'll have like a blend, like some, they'll have some brown spots and some white and like that kind of thing. They're really fun. Right. There's a whole lot of different um, color patterning that has names. Okay. So the the variety in these sheep is gorgeous, and yeah. diverse. What's your favorite color pattern? Oh, that's not a fair question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what are some of the names of the color patterns? Uh, if, if people are looking at Shetland fleeces and, you know, wondering what's going on. Ketmogget, Golmogget, um, 
it's like there's a dozen or 30 of them, I think. That's cool. And, and um, so you have a badger face form and you have a reverse badger face form. Those are the ones that I just mentioned. Uh-huh. Um, I saw a sheep once in a field in Shetland that was like, I forget whether it was white on its front half and black on its back half or vice versa. Oh, that's cute. It was charming. <laughs> charming. Um, and I actually haven't spent the time and effort to memorize all the names. Partly. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot. Well, and if you were a Shetland breeder, it would make sense. But well, and, and when they register their sheep, they, they want to put a color name of that type on them. Mm-hmm. And it's not always that easy because they shift yeah. colors as they grow up. Oh, I see. Um, if you read Margaret Howard's books on genetics, which are wonderful, she has um, guidelines to checking color points at within a few days of birth. Okay. And predicting then where they're going to land in the future. Okay. If you miss that window, you may not catch those signs. Oh, I see. Um, okay. But you you look at the front and the back, you know, you look at their tummies and you look at their backs and you look at where their color is, you know, on their ears or under the tails or in their ears, various places. Yeah. And those are those are signals of where the color will end up. Okay. Anyway, cool. it's it's really complicated. It's beyond my knowledge base. Yeah. And it's wonderful. That's awesome. Yeah. So they started in the Shetland Isles then? Yes. So are they native to there? Yes. Okay. Well, and then when you say native, that's a, that's an interesting question for sheep because humans took them there initially. Oh, okay. Got it. So humans yeah. took probably probably prehistory at this yes. like for this juncture. Okay. Yes. So prehistorical, they were, you know, sheep landed there and because they're so isolated, is that why they've stayed more like a primitive breed? Yes, although the Shetlanders have bred for increased consistency and um quality of wool um, in what are called the flock book Shetlands. Okay. So the Shetlanders have several different types of Shetland sheep within Shetland. Got it. That they use in different ways. Okay. Um, so some of the sheep are what we might call primitive, and that's a loaded word. Yeah. Um, and some of them are more, quote unquote, modern. Yeah. And, and they use them judiciously in conjunction with each other for particular okay. purposes. That's cool. Yeah, it is very cool. Well, and it's interesting that they've still got so much diversity within just that small area. Yes. Yeah. So have Shetlands made their way out, you know, from, from Shetland um, to, to other places just because they're so unique? Or was there more history to it? They're unique. Their size is useful. Um, they're fun sheep. Yeah. And um, I'm not sure where else they are, but there are quite a few in the U.S. and Canada. I wonder if if those have been mostly brought over as like hobby flocks or if people, you know, really thought that like, you know, we have a similar climate to Shetland. I wonder what the thought process was in getting getting them over. Um, I think that's just that they're really interesting sheep. Um, okay. I think probably they remain for the most part uh, in the hobby flock Okay. range and i'm i'm using that hobby advisedly because yeah. people are very serious about them i would say avocational okay. rather than hobby yeah. um the largest flock that i've known of was about 300 yeah 
um, in Montana that was dispersed a couple of years ago. They were used for conservation grazing to keep oh, the fire risk down. That makes sense because sheep, um, sheep chip or clip, clip grass. Um, like sheep are really good for conservation better than like some other animals, like better than cows um, because sheep clip the grass near to the root. Well, so and the grass the will keep thing, growing rather than tearing it up like cows do. Well, and your breed of sheep matters a lot. Yeah. Because some sheep are not so great for conservation grazing and some are very, very good. Okay. Well, and the Shetlands being, you know, relatively hardy and, um, you know, I imagine that they lamb really easily. So you could just kind of like leave the sheep in this area and they would kind of take care of themselves. <laughs> Right. They do need protection from predators. That's, yeah. That's a huge issue. Um, but beyond that, yes, they are very um, self-sufficient. Cool. That makes sense. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks, Deb. You're welcome, Miriam. Thanks for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it please do check out the show notes for pictures, links, and that giveaway from Elemental Effects. Something from this episode that really struck home with me is that we all knit for different reasons. I knit as a job and because it really gives me something productive to do with my hands, but I also knit because it makes me feel magical, like I'm turning something simple into something extraordinary. It feeds the creative part of my brain while soothing the bit of OCD that I have to be doing something. And I'm wondering about you. What does knitting mean to you? What do you get from your knitting? I'd love to get your emails, or if you just want to talk at me, you can use your smartphone to record an audio clip and send it to me that way. Most smartphones have an app to record audio, but if you don't have one, there are plenty for free. I use one called Voice Recorder from Quality Apps on my Android phone. It records MP3s, which you can then send anywhere you want as attachments. Please send the emails with attachments or as text to miriam at yarnstoriespodcast.com. I'd really love to hear from you. Thanks again for your support. You can follow the podcast on social media via Facebook, search for Yarn Stories Podcast with no space between yarn and stories, Twitter at Yarn Stories Pod, or Instagram at Yarn Stories Podcast for updates and pretty pictures. You can also follow me in all of my other endeavors at Miriam Felton Knit Designs on Facebook and on Twitter or Instagram at MimKnits. And again, the address for the Patreon, if you want to get some really cool rewards and all that bonus content, is patreon.com slash Miriam Felton. That's M-I-R-I-A-M-F-E-L-T-O-N. This podcast was produced in Salt Lake City, Utah, with production help from Sid Fallon. Music is by the ever-elusive Breakmaster Cylinder. I'll be back in two weeks with the final episode for this season, talking with Kristen Ford from Wolf Oak. Thanks. Hey, babe. Hi. What you doing in the closet? <laughs>